Good morning. My name is Taylor Leposky, and uh, I serve up here with our praise and worship team. And uh, my wife Angie and I have been members here at Linworth for a little over a couple years now. Uh, our scripture reading this morning will be out of uh, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning. Did Alex mention the crew win? Right? Congratulations, congratulations, crew. How many were there? Few of you, yes, yes, yes. It looked like a lot of fun. It's the first soccer game I ever watched. <laughs> not quite, not quite, but almost. But it was exciting. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. All right. Have you ever heard, how many of you have ever heard of the smile face experiments? Oh, okay, wow, nobody. One, one, okay. Well, I'd like to show you this experiment. Uh, it's a powerful image, even though it does not necessarily reveal something new or earth-shattering. Now, let me warn you, for me, I had a strong emotional reaction to it, uh, but I am strange. <laughs> so it may not be that way for you, but if it does for you, I do want you to keep in mind that God can fill in the empty spaces of your life, and even if that emptiness is missing the attention of someone, of a, of a parent. So let's take a few minutes and, and watch this and, and experience it. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying oh, 34 years ago when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. Oh. And she gives a greeting to the baby. The baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world, and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this, and then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. 
She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. a little like the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that normal stuff that goes on, that we all do with our kids. The bad is when something bad happens, but the infant can overcome it. After all, when you stop the still face, the mother and the baby start to play again. The ugly is when you don't give the child any chance to get back to the good. I, again, I just, I just find that particularly powerful, very powerful. Again, this is not earth-shattering. We so long for our parents' attention and affection, and when we don't get it, it does create a void. Something in us breaks down. And I, and I think at some level, we're all aware of that. But let me, if I could, build a bridge from our parents' to our Heavenly Father. Because likewise, the Bible teaches that our souls have been shaped in such a way that for us to be fully alive, we need God's approval and His attention and His affection. And that is even a more fundamental need than parent love. And when God's love is cut off, it does create a void. And our hearts become disordered. What I mean, what that means is that the things we want are out of whack with our true nature. We want and pursue the things that will never satisfy our heart. Now, in the Bible, this sense of having God's approval is addressed in the language of seeing God's face. And this should not come as a surprise. The face the face reflects the character and the personality of the person. It is in the face that emotions are expressed. It is in the face that we detect love, acceptance, significance, or the opposite. We conclude that we are being dismissed or rejected. It is widely believed that the majority of our communication to others is nonverbal. And much of that is reflected in the face. Now, some Christians say that nowhere in the Bible does it say that we are supposed to have a personal relationship with God. No, of course it doesn't. Personal relationships is a very modern phrase. Why would we expect the Bible written hundreds of years ago to use it? So we have to ask the question, 
is the language of intimacy in the Bible in a way that ancient people understood? Is it really possible to feel close to God, a God that I can't see or a God that I can't touch? Maybe before going further, we should define intimacy because it can mean different things to different people. So this is how I'm using it. And this is the Martin definition. Intimacy involves feeling a particular way since it engages mind and heart, but it is more than an emotion. It is an inward sense of the experience of closeness, safety, and rest in the presence of another. Now, if you leave that just on the screen for a moment, Andrea, I want to ask you the question, is that possible with God? And I believe it is. Is this only for a few spiritual giants? I don't think so. And the incarnation, the word made flesh, as we just read, is going to put the exclamation point on this. Imagine for a moment, what would happen in your life? What would happen to your sense of confidence and purpose if you knew if you trusted, if you could gaze into God's face and find attention, affection, and approval. This has been so vital to my journey of faith. I can't overstate how important it is, and I am still growing in it. By default, I said before, I tend to picture God's face as austere, severe, and reluctant to give or to give approval. In other words, to smile. Sometimes I think that can only happen if I complete just some really extremely difficult ministry task. Then maybe reluctantly I'll get a smile on his face. Slowly over the years, I am learning to abandon my religious perfectionism. The belief that my offering to him has to be perfect and become like a little child in my heavenly Father's eyes, and to leave behind all the things that I cling to for security and simply come to Him and to rest in His presence and to see His face. So this is our task today. I want to try to answer the following questions. And then we'll see how the incarnation folds into the answers. Here are the two questions. Is the language of intimacy in the Bible? And is intimacy with God possible? And we're going to look at three examples, Moses, David, and Jesus. All right? So that's what we're going to do today. Moses, David, and Jesus to try to answer these questions. And then when we are in third base heading towards home, we're going to fold in the incarnation and the glory of the incarnation. Let's pray together that the Spirit might give to us this morning what he longs to give. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come together as the body of Christ. The hands, the arms, the feet, the heart, the pulse of the body of Jesus. We come together in connection with the body of Christ meeting all over the world. 
And we pray, Father, will your Holy Spirit make available to us everything that we need to grow and to learn and to depend on and to become like Jesus. We pray that whether you do something very still and quiet this morning or whether you do something big and splashing, we just ask you to work in our hearts and to work in our lives this morning through the power of your Spirit who is with us. Through Jesus, through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. If you have your Bible or the, the Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you, turn to Exodus chapter 33. It's page 73. We're going to look at Moses. Let me set the context here for him. And we're going to start at verse, I think it's verse uh, 17. And let me tell you what's happening here. Moses, it's pretty interesting, a little funny actually. Moses is essentially negotiating with God. In, indeed. I, you can't read this and not come to that conclusion. He is negotiating with God. He is saying, God, you have commanded me to lead your people, but I cannot do it alone. Who will you send to be with me? And by the way, Lord, remember, they're your people. They're not mine. They're your responsibility. And if you're going to accomplish your purposes through them and want me to lead them, I need more from you. Well, God's not put off by this. He listens, and he promises Moses that his very presence will go with him. Let's read what happens next in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, The very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please, show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Oh, I mean, you catch this? What a remarkable exchange between God and a man. Moses' prayer is a heart cry to see not only the majesty and power of God, but his face. We know that because God interprets Moses' request to see his glory as a request to see his face. And God says, no. But why? Because Moses could not receive a full revelation of God in his sinful condition and live. Hmm. Intimacy is impossible, is it? Not so fast. Does this mean that intimacy in this place and time for Moses was impossible? No. There was intimacy between Moses and God. As a point of fact, God did talk with Moses one-on-one -on -one in what's called the tent of meeting away from other people. And in that place, God spoke to Moses as a friend speaks to a friend. Let's stay here. 
and look at two examples of this. Look at chapter 33, turn back a page, verses 9 and 11. Actually, it might be chapter 32. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is it 32? It begins with, as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud. It is 33. Okay, okay. I got a little confused. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. Now listen, people, folks, friends. Uh, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm making myself guilty. Friendship in the ancient world was not loosely thrown around, as I just did. You know, how many Facebook friends do you have? Oh, several thousand, right? Friendship means something different in the Bible. Friendship then indicated high levels of trust and intimacy and proximity and connectedness. So when it says that God spoke to Moses as a friend to a friend, that was something very profound. And conveyed a level of proximity and connectedness and intimacy. Let me give you one other example. Turn to Numbers chapter 12. It's page 120. The setting here, let me, get, let me provide the setting. It's Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Now, Aaron and Miriam were Moses' chief Council, they were his leadership team. And Aaron and Miriam are not happy with Moses because of his recent choice of a wife. And they began to question him about that. And along with it, they questioned their role on the leadership team. Now, Aaron and Miriam have been unjustly critical, and pride has seeped in, and God is having nothing to do with it. Let's see what God says in verse 4, chapter 12. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Hmm. Now you catch the meaning here? In other words... Though God speaks to and through the prophets, he speaks to them in a veiled way from a place of relational distance, but not so with Moses. Now, what does that mean that Moses beholds the form of the Lord? Well, we know it's not his face. It is not a full revelation of God, but it is something of great value, obviously. It's very interesting that Jesus used the exact same phrase 
in John chapter 5. But there, not as an affirmation, but rather a condemnation. Because he tells the Pharisees, he says this. Jesus says this to the Pharisees, referring to the Father. You have never heard his voice or seen his form. Nor does his word dwell in you. Now the Pharisees, as you know, they had a very severe picture of God in their quest for moral perfection, but it did not lead to an intimate relationship. In verse 42, Jesus said, I know you that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. So I take from this that in Moses' case, seeing his form was a partial revelation of God that produced experiential knowledge of God and intimacy. So yes, I think given all, given, given all that we have shared here, that we are safe in concluding that Moses experienced intimacy with God. Let's go to our second example to David, all right? Now, to kind of get after if David had intimacy with God, I'd like to do a brief survey of scriptures from the book of Psalms. And there, David describes his relationship with God using the language of God's face. And again, just so this is not confusing, when David says he sees God's face, he is not talking about seeing a physical face. He is employing the language of faith. I do see God's face with spiritual eyes, again, based on what God reveals about himself through his word. Let's take a look at five or six of these texts, beginning with Psalm chapter 11 in verse 7. In this psalm, David is praising God for his sovereign justice. And he writes this, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. When we love justice as God does, not just in theory, but when we desperately want to see wrongs made right for the glory of God, we enter into an intimacy with him because we share his purpose. And David likened intimacy to seeing his face. Jesus said something very similar in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Turn over just a page or two to Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is a psalm of lament. All is not as it should be. Psalm 13, verse 1. David prays, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? As in, this, in the opening video of that mother 
This prayer verbalizes the experience of disorientation and desperation when mom's approval could not be detected. And the same dynamic exists in our relationship with God. This prayer is a cry of abandonment, of doubt. It is a season. It's an experience. It's an event when David could not detect God's approval or acceptance described here by God hiding his face. Look at Psalm 17. This is a psalm of deliverance. Verse 15, David says, As for me, I will be vindicated when I see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. David is in the midst of terrible persecution from enemies who wish him harm. He turns to God. And in conclusion to his prayer, he envisions a future victory not yet realized. And so he says, I will live and I will see your face. God will defend and justify me before my enemies. And not only that, he will satisfy me. Psalm 27, another prayer of deliverance. Verse 8. David prays, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject or forsake me, God my Savior. Now in the context here, David's troubles have caused him to look inside and wonder, hmm, I wonder how my sins have contributed to these circumstances. Anybody relate to that? His once assurance of God's love, so full and unshakable at other times, is now on shaky ground. And the loss of God's approval is captured in the phrase, do not hide your face from me, his greatest fear in life. Psalm 31, a few pages over. Psalm 31, here David is in distress. He's alone, perhaps physically sick, and certainly on the verge of despair. But he cries out to God, and he's anticipating God's favor and blessing. And in verse 16, he says, Let your face shine on your servant. Save me in your unfailing love. Here, David connects God's unfailing, our steadfast, our never-ending love with the word picture of God's face shining on him. Hey, when God's face shines on me, I can face anything, I can do anything. If God is for me, who can be against me? This is a small sample size of this word through Scripture. But enough to ask, is intimacy with God possible? We saw it with Moses, and I believe here we capture a piece of it as well in the life of David. Intimacy is captured by the image of seeing pleasure on God's face from being rightly related with him. His face represents God's true self and character. God's face reveals 
even if partially sufficient knowledge about himself, such that it is possible to have an assurance of his love and his approval. Let's go now to our third example of Jesus. David, or Moses, David, and now Jesus. And I want to go back to where we began when Taylor read the scripture to us, John 1, 14, page 886. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word we learned previously from verse 1 was with God and was God. And John clearly identified here in verse 14 that the word of God was Jesus. And John wants us to recognize a very simple truth that God became a human being and pitched his tent right among us. This is what we call the incarnation, the miracle of Christmas. Now dwelling carries with it the idea of a mobile tent because the place where God first dwelled among his people was camping in a tent. And that tent was pitched right smack in the middle of the Jewish encampment as they journeyed towards the promised land. That way the people could see the glory of God ascending or descending on that tent. So John is saying in verse 14, Jesus templed, he tabernacled among us, and we saw his glory. And look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now let's think about that for a moment. He has made him known. Now this idea, no one has ever seen God, John's asserting the point that we made earlier. No one has seen God with their physical eyes. That was Moses' experience and every human being before him. Moses, others could not see the actual face of God in their sinful condition, lest they die in the presence of his overwhelming, brilliant holiness. But something is astir. Jesus has come. He was at the Father's side. He has made him known, John says. What does that mean, made him known? We have already said God has revealed himself, yes, but only partially. Making him known can only mean that Jesus brings us a greater and more full revelation of who God is. Indeed, we see his face, or his face was seen with physical eyes. Now, this Greek word for making him known is exegeo. It's where we get the word exegesis, meaning to bring forth the meaning. Jesus brings forth the meaning of the Father in a way previously unknown. Now, I'm off course a little bit. The question I'm asking is, did Jesus have a close relationship with the Father? We'll go back to verse 18. The ESV renders this probably the most blandly, saying Jesus who is at the Father's side. 
Other versions say Jesus is in close relationship with the Father. Still others say Jesus was in the bosom of the Father or in the lap of the Father. Either way, it's agreed that all of these are different ways of saying the same thing, indicating close proximity and an intimate relationship between Jesus and his Father. Now, following the imagery of the bosom, ask yourself this. How many people in the world can you picture lying next to on a couch? Probably not that many, right? John is indicating here the uniquely intimate relationship of Jesus to the Father. And from that vantage point, to show us the Father unlike any other. Jesus had an intimate relationship with the Father. The Gospel of John continues to reveal that. Now, before we leave the example of Jesus, let me show you one more verse. This coming from Paul, the Apostle Paul, and I use it because here again we find the word face, the language of intimacy. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and it reads this. For God who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we find true, knowable knowledge about God? In the face of Jesus. Just as God spoke through Jesus the word and there was light, right? The heavens and the earth were created. In the same way, God spoke through Jesus the word and light shined into our hearts, making us a new creation. Wow, does that verse really say all that? Yes, I do. I think Paul crammed about as much theology as he one could into that single verse. These scriptures certainly mean that in Jesus, we have the fullest expression of who God is. And through the incarnation, a new era of salvation history begins, one where God makes himself vulnerable and accessible through the person of Jesus. And so I go back to the questions that we began with this morning. Is the language of intimacy in the Bible? Yes, I think that I have shown that. And is intimacy with God possible? Yes, again, I think I have shown that. Jesus, Moses, and David experienced an intimate relationship with the Father. But, you object, they don't count. They are spiritual heavyweights whose lives I could never dream of emulating in a thousand years, especially Jesus, who was sinless. But I say back to you, if you assert that, you have missed the meaning and the glory of the incarnation. Because Jesus not only modeled what intimacy with the Father could look like as a human being filled with the Holy Spirit, just as we can be. But he also made intimacy with the Father possible by giving us the opportunity to be rightly related to our Father. 
In a body, he could die for us. In a body, he could resurrect for us. And in a body, he could restore the image of God in us so that we can know and relate to our Father. And now through the Holy Spirit, you and me, we can have union, connectedness with Jesus that makes intimacy with the Father possible for every single one of us. Why? Why? Because we are rightly related to him and we have his faith. Yes, his face, like the mothers, looking at us, speaking to us, paying attention to us, counseling us, and loving us. This is the foundation of an intimate relationship made possible through Jesus. And really, friends, in reality, there are things that you understand and you grasp that Moses and David never did because you have a fuller revelation of who God is. You see, the incarnation is a love story. It is the world's greatest love story. I have mentioned several times how Moses could never see God again because of their sinful condition. They would be, he would be overwhelmed in the presence of God. The utter brilliance, the presence of God, think about it, the utter brilliance of such holiness and purity. You know how difficult it is to stare into the sun, right? You can't do it. Well, the sun is but a veiled reflection of the blazing glory of God. Imagine a being, capital B being, a million times brighter than the sun. You know, you see, that's the same glory. That same glory is the glory that Jesus set aside when he took on flesh and became a baby born in weakness. I mean, right? We go to the manger and we look at that little baby lying in poverty on the backside of the Roman Empire and we're compelled to ask Jesus, what are you doing here? I mean, here you are, the self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful God who existed in paradise in total love, in total acceptance, surrounded by glory, of which this earth is but a dim reflection. You have lived in perfect wholeness within the community of the Godhead for all eternity, yet you would leave that place to come to a world riddled with human brokenness. Why didn't you walk away, Jesus? But he didn't. Why? Because of love. Years ago, Vanessa Carlton sang, I'd walk a thousand miles if I could just see you. Jesus walked a million miles from heaven to earth to die for you. John Sartell wrote, I would not choose the sums of Calcutta, India, for my vacation. And there were extraordinary people who worked among the deformity and decay of leper colonies 150 years ago. That's not where most of us would want to live our lives, if we're honest, right? Multiply the distance between where we are now and those places by a thousand, and we still don't come near the awful distance traveled by the Son of God in the incarnation. Now, if you grew up hearing about this every year, the incarnation to you may seem like an old dusty doctrine. 
hear it through the eyes of someone who it dawns upon for the first time. After returning home from a very long tour, Bono, 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 you know what it is. It's been so long since I've heard his name. The lead singer of U2, obviously. He returned to Dublin and he attended, of all things, a Christmas Eve service. And at some point in the service, he grasped the truth at the heart of the Christmas story. In Jesus, God became a human being. And with tears streaming down his face, he realizes the idea that God, this is what he says, the idea that God, if there is a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself, that's amazing enough. That it would seek to explain itself by becoming a child born in poverty and straw, a child. I just thought, wow, the, the poetry. And I saw the genius of picking a particular point in time and deciding to turn on this because love needs to find a form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. Donald McCullough, at first, I thought this was David McCullough. I thought, wow, I didn't know David McCullough wrote great Christian books, but it's Donald McCullough. Donald McCullough, in a book called The Trivialization of God, tells the following story. It's a story about a surgeon named Richard Selzer, and in a sad surgery, he had to cut a nerve in a young woman's cheek in order to get after a tumor to remove it. The result was that her mouth was permanently misshapen. Now, he was really uncertain as to how the husband would respond to this change. Maybe some of you doctors can relate to these tense, potentially awkward moments. Well, he was actually very encouraged by how the husband responded, because when a young man came in, he was warm and caring to his wife, even joking about her cute new look. But when he saw what happened next, the doctor's encouragement turned to awe. For the young husband bent down towards his wife, twisted his lips to fit her crooked mouth, and gently kissed her. Now, McCullough says, and he points this out, what a great picture of the incarnation. God bent down, he twisted his lips, and he kissed the crooked lips of the world, misshapen by sin and despair with his love and grace. This is the glory of the incarnation. This is the greatest love story, my friends, in the world. Now to wrap up, this morning, I've tried to raise the bar for you, for each of you, on what you can experience in your relationship with God. And if you would like to have a deeper intimacy with God, I'd encourage you to read a book uh, called Communion with God. I have to call it maybe the, the best book I've ever read explaining the love of the Father and the love of God. And you might think in your mind, oh, that's probably some book written in the 20th century by some modern guy who's lost all sense of the justice of God and he's only focusing on the love of God. 
it's coming, it's coming. No, this book was written in the 1600s by John Owen, a Puritan. And the book has been uh, rewritten into a language that makes it a little more accessible. And it is a book explaining the love of the Father, actually the love of the Son and the love of the Spirit and how we can relate and love back all three in just beautiful, profound, deep ways. And I would encourage you to read that book if, you, if, if this is something that's striking your heart. And there are lots of other practical steps I could mention. But what I want to do this morning, or rather what I hope the Holy Spirit has done and will do is create in you a hunger for more. A depth of experience with God that you do not have right now. Some of you, and maybe many of you, are stuck in that place where functionally, day to day, your relationship feels like that baby's when the mother's face has gone unresponsive. You look at God's face and you see nothing. You look at God's face and you get nothing. You don't sense his approval or his acceptance, or you know it here, but it's not here. It's not felt, it's not experienced. His approval, his affection, his acceptance. And if you were really honest, you might say, well, maybe I'm afraid to stare into the face of God. Afraid you'll be crushed by it. Perhaps you're afraid to think good thoughts about God. Maybe you're even afraid of joy. You know, you may be unwittingly, you may be unwittingly and actually thinking you're spiritual. You may be assigning to God characteristics to him that actually he says in his word that he hates. Just as Satan deceived Adam and Eve about God's generous and kind nature, and I would add his generous and kind face, you too have been deceived. You see him as an exploiter, a taker, unable to be pleased, fierce, unrealistically demanding. And my friend, what you need is more than a practical step. What you need is a personal revival in your life, a coming of the Holy Spirit, a blowing away of the dust of pride or deception. You say, I can't control the coming of the Holy Spirit. How is that practical? You're right. You can't. But I can promise you this, if you are not hungry for him, if you are not hungry for more, he will not come. Or if he does, you will not recognize him. Jesus says he fills the hungry with good things, but he sends the rich are self-satisfied. He sends them away empty-handed. You know, what might the Holy Spirit be doing in your life to try to activate that hunger? For some of you, it may need, it may mean joining a life group. For others, it might mean actually doing life with your life group, not just mechanically showing up. 
For some, it may mean to start coming to church more regularly and exposing yourself to the beauty power of God's word. For others, it might mean that you need to pursue a Christian friendship and begin to address the hidden sins or the troubling temptations. For others, it may be to actually start spending time with Jesus rather than just fitting him in when you have spare time. The Holy Spirit will direct you to more and greater intimacy with the Father if you want it. That's the bottom line. If you are hungry, if you're willing to listen to him, you see, the glory of the incarnation is the exclamation point saying, I love you. I love you. And God saying, I am here with all the love and acceptance and approval that a smiling face can give. This is the very foundation of intimacy. And the question for me and for you is, do you want it? Do you want it? Will you pray with me? Father, you know what you're doing in every heart here this morning. You know, Father, what desires or what pain or what confusion or what questions you have raised in each heart here this morning. I can only ask you, Father, to do what no human being can do, and that is to cause us to invite you into the very core of our life and for you, Holy Spirit, to lead us to the Father, to lead us to the place where he dwells, to the altar of God where we offer our lives once again, to God our only joy, to God our only delight, and to present to him not a perfect offering, but a broken one, a sinful one, a selfish one, a self-centered one, one twisted by sin and temptation. That's all we have to give to you, Father. That's all we can bring. And thank you, that's all you ask us to do, is to bring our broken self to you and to offer our lives. Lord, the cry of the human heart, whether we have connected to her or not, is make your face smile upon us. And Father, that's my prayer for all of my friends here. May your face smile upon them. And may your face smile upon this church.